Harvard Divinity School. Bears Ears is listening. We are still here and the land is calling us back. April 28, 2022. Hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this seminar, this webinar this afternoon in a really rich discussion about Bears Ears and its legacy of participation in how the communities connected to it have helped reclaim that land uh, and the future that they hold for it moving forward. I'm Diane Moore. I am the Faculty Director of Religion and Public Life. And it is my great honor for Religion and Public Life to co-sponsor this event with the Harvard University Native American Program. And I wanna thank them for their important work and in particular for the work of Interim Director Jason Pacanel. Harvard University is located on the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts and the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. We pay respect to the people of the Massachusetts tribe past and present and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. I invite folks to drop questions into the Q&A throughout this conversation. I'm gonna now offer a brief introduction to our two remarkable guests. Um, uh, and then I will turn it over to them to begin this conversation. First, I want to introduce Angelo Baca. Angelo is from the Navajo and Hopi nations, which are tribal nations located within their Aboriginal territory in the Southwest region of the United States. He is the cultural resources coordinator for the Utah Diné Bakea, a nonprofit with an all indigenous board and a mission to engage local native community members to protect their traditional cultures and ancestral lands. As a filmmaker and PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at New York University, Angelo has research interests in indigenous international repatriation, indigenous food sovereignty, and sacred lands protection. Our second guest is Cynthia Wilson, who we have the privilege and honor of uh, hosting as a religious literacy in the professions fellow last year and uh, this upcoming academic year. In addition to her work with us, which is actually secondary to her primary work, Cynthia is a tribal member of the Navajo Nation, born and raised in Monument Valley, Utah. She is of the Folded Arms People clan and born for the Towering House clan. Wilson holds an MS in nutrition from the University of Utah. She serves as the traditional foods program director for Utah Diné Bakea, a native and nonprofit organization with a mission to preserve and protect the cultural and natural resources of ancestral lands. She is also a founding member of the Women of Bears Ears initiative that seeks to restore indigenous women's matrilineal roles and to rematriate the earth. Her work encompasses traditional knowledge that addresses the environment, cultural, nutritional, and spiritual health of the land and the people. She hopes to strengthen healthy food practices and its ties to reclaim local traditional food ways of knowing among indigenous communities. Thank you all for being with us. And again, I'm gonna turn it over now to, our, to, to both Angelo and Cynthia. Thanks again for being with us and look forward to this rich presentation and our conversation. 
Yes, thank you for having us here today. So um, uh, really uh, honored to be here. And um, I'd, I'd like to invite uh, Cynthia to start us off. All right, thank you, Diane and Angelo for joining me on this webinar. Uh, we're gonna talk a lot about sharing our work uh, under the Bears Ears National Monument Movement as Indigenous grassroots community organizers. So I'll see if I can pull up my slides here or share my screen. Okay, so Bears Ears is listening um, is what I put as our title because I was thinking about um, my mom and I wanted to bring you all to place here. I'm calling in from Monument Valley, Utah, Arizona, and Bears Ears is just north of me um, where the buttes, the two buttes uh, sit. And every time I travel that way, uh, my mom's an herbalist and before going through the buttes, the ears, she always yells as loud as she can four times in all cardinal directions. And that's how uh, we greet and let our ancestors know that we are still here and that we are still here speaking up for them uh, as far as protecting our ancestral landscapes and all non-human beings that live there. So this slide um, is a map of San Juan County, Utah. If you can see the very lower um, right corner is a Four Corners region. Um, so this is South um, Eastern Utah and the dark shaded outline is in two parcels. There's one at the left side and then a larger dark blue outline on the right side. So that's an outline of of what was designated by President Obama back in 2016, 1.35 million acres. Uh, when originally, I'll step back a few, a few bit, um, Utah Denebikea is a native-led nonprofit organization which started from our board of directors in collecting elder wisdom, in interviewing our knowledge holders, medicine people, and um, where they documented a lot of cultural mapping of this landscape. And this is how they created a proposal that was handed off to the Baird's Ears Intertribal Coalition in 2015, um, uh, using their sovereignty status to request 1.9 million acres to be protected under the Obama administration. And in 2016, the dark blue outline boundary is what was designated by President Obama. And then in, within a year or less than a year, it felt like uh, when Trump administration took over, they reduced the monument by 85%, which you can see in the light blue color. Um, they called it two separate monuments, Shashja National Monument at the lower light blue color and the upper light blue color was Indian Creek National Monument. And then in, in 2021 is when Biden came 
came in and restored Baird's Ears National Monument back to 1.35 million acres. Did you have anything to add, Angelo? Yeah, um, I think this is a, a really great map for a couple of reasons, right? Like, uh, first of all, I you might not know who I am, but I am the Cultural Resources Coordinator for Utah Dine Bikeya. Uh, some of you may already know Cynthia as she's working with you, but she was uh, also uh, a part of our um, uh, initiative uh, from the community as well and working with uh, elders and traditional folks and medicine people um, and so uh, I did a lot of work also in trying to um, make sure that you know we had continual voices and representation heard from the community um, so yet a Angelo Baca Yenesheshnala uh, so those are my clans in Navajo. I'm Navajo and Hopi, and uh, I grew up here and I live here now. Um, and so this has been a uh, professional, educational, and personal uh, passion project of mine. And I really love that we were able to get uh, a number of different um, elders and traditional knowledge holders to be interviewed so that they could figure out what were the places that deserved the most protection. And the result was the 1.9 million proposal um, that the uh, tribes came up with. And so the Obama designation of the 1.35 million acre, uh, the map that you're seeing now, um, was somewhat of a compromise. Uh, and we had hoped to stay as close as possible to protect the entire region. But um, you know, we think that for the most part, many of our considerations uh, were taken seriously. and. Of course, we, even during reduction, advocated for the 1.9 million as being a restoration option. So um, this is where we're at right now, um, is very close to the old Obama designation. So I just wanted to, to add that right now with um, President Biden's um, uh, reinstatement of the National Monument. So this work starting from the board of directors with Utah Denebikea and listening to the elders' voices on the ground within the indigenous communities who have ties to the Bears Ears landscape uh, came up with our overall mission really centered around healing, healing of the earth and the people, uh, which was really about strengthening our relationships to the land and our culture in in actively um, utilizing and reclaiming this, this space so that the future generation can um, learn our cultural ways of life as far as collecting medicines, traditional foods, traditional hunting, and learning our creation stories that derive from this place. So it has a lot of teachings and when I interviewed elders, they talk about um, as, as a staff member within this Native-led movement, they told us not to just speak of bear's ears as a something that is over there as, as a mountain, but they said, you are bear's ears. Uh, you can't just talk about it, you have to live it. 
So through our roles, we had to be proactively engaging our knowledge holders and their voices and also engaging with them in ceremony. So we took a lot of time and energy at the community level in learning and using our language as well in, in it was part of the success of this work, which, is, which was all on, about prayer. Prayer is what led up to where we are at now. And um, it's what has been keeping us going since, since our board members have um, been advocating for this landscape. And I wanted to bring up this quote from the Barack Obama proclamation when he designated Bears Ears National Monument on December 28, 2016, he specifically stated that traditional ecological knowledge is itself a resource to be protected and used in understanding and managing this landscape sustainably for generations to come. And to me, what this meant is traditional knowledge is essential for land management planning whereas the land itself is essential to each of our cultures. And so when we talk about traditional knowledge, this is actually what created the 1.9 million acre proposed boundary um, as we were doing cultural mapping. A lot of our elders shared stories that tied back to our creation stories. And a lot of our teachings are oral uh, stories that have been passed down over many generations. And they emphasize the importance of, of keeping our knowledge systems um, in educating our native youth so that they continue to use uh, this space and to maintain their cultural practices and a lot of our ceremonies also derive from this land. Uh, but one thing I realized in the proclamation language, they mentioned traditional ecological knowledge as an object to be protected. But one thing that I think they've been missing is really about the relationship. That it's really about restored relationship with indigenous peoples to the land and to me, that's in address to climate change. Because of our disconnections to our ancestral landscapes, we've been put on federal reserve land that disconnect us from the margins or the boundaries that were put in our society uh, that created public lands managed by US Forest Service and the BLM. So when we're talking about um, bears ears as a cultural living landscape. It's really about restoring our relationship to our non-human relatives on the landscape. This is where our stories are documented through the petroglyphs. And it's where many, our various tribes have lived here since time immemorial and tribes have moved uh, with the seasons. Um, and it's where we depend on for a lot of our cultural resources. I believe it was documented that over 100,000 cultural resources were documented 
uh, within the Bears Ears proposed boundary. And Angelo, feel free to chime in when you can. Yeah, one thing I'll add here because you did a great job covering it is uh, the cultural living landscape is really important because a lot of people will think of a national park or a national monument as separate with no people in it. And that is entirely not what we wanted for Bears Ears. We go there to harvest uh, food, medicine, firewood, um, hunt. You know, there's all kinds of things, uh, ceremony that are affiliated with our daily life um, as indigenous peoples. It's really important to us to have access and to continue our cultural practices. So the people need the land and the land needs the people. It's a symbiotic relationship. And so that's really important to emphasize the cultural living landscape piece of it. It's not just about uh, preserving something and then having no human interaction in it, as a lot of um, Americans might be conditioned to think. You know, it's really important for us to uh, protect that relationship and keep practicing our cultural ways. So just adding that. Yeah, so engaging our voices uh, into these planning process was essential um, into this movement, especially when the proclamation language was being um, written. So we wanted to elevate the voices of our uh, knowledge holders. And a model example of that is um, uh, food. So I'll share a two minute video here. Hey, I'm Carlos Baca, uh, chef and founder of Taste of Native Cuisine. We are here as united tribes from different sovereign nations to put our voices into this fight to possibly strip this place of uh, monument status. The fight for bear's ears is the fight for food. It's the fight for education. It's the fight for your language. It's the fight for everything that we hold dear that makes us a, a sovereign people. Oh, this is all of our fight. This is everybody in the nation. It's a national monument. It's not just an indigenous fight. This was created just as much for you as it was for us. When you can see tribes that sometimes stand in opposition to each other come together and unite, you know that it's bigger than you. And you know that there's a true, true ancestral happening here, you know? This knowledge that that's up and down these canyons is, it's Zuni, it's Hopi, it's Nooch, it's Dene. It's all the tribes that traveled through here. There's memories engraved here. There's creation stories here. There's everything that should hold importance to a people. But you know, we have this conversation with everything that has to do with the past, the present and the future, right? We're at a, at a place in time in, in our history to where we can be heard in whatever capacity that we have in these movements, you know. Stand up for it, use your voice, use your computer, use your hands, I don't care. Don't take your voice away from the battle, however that looks. So food is a great model example of one of those 
cultural resources that has been talked a lot among the elders. Um, and when we interviewed the elders, we really talked about food as a living, breathing being. And all our interviews were in fluent Navajo language. Uh, we talked about who is this food being, what gifts and powers does he or she have, and how do we act responsibly um, in reciprocity as we are engaging these plant relatives while collecting herbs or medicines on the landscape or using the food source for a ceremony. And with that, we, one of the priorities of the elders was always about uh, maintaining that um, cultural knowledge among our youth. So we did a lot of cultural food workshops where we um, engage with traditional hunters. They talked about how they make arrow. They did archery workshops. We talked about the tiny four corners potato, which has been dated back 11,000 years off the potato starch res residue on an old grinding stone that was found at Grand, Grand Staircase Escalante. And we also um, did a workshop with herbalists who did a lot of plant, talked about um, plant knowledge, uh, sustainable uses of how uh, the, the branches and stems are used for like basket weaving or traditional stirring sticks, cooking tools. And we also did um, a sheep butchering workshop with a lot of uh, uh, local cultural cooks in our area. And we call that uh, in indigenous healing kitchen. So part of our work um, and engaging our community was really centered around food, which brings our people together. And it's an opportunity to engage a lot of that knowledge language. And when, while listening to the elders in our community and our knowledge holders, um, our work was really driven, driven based on their priorities in the communities. So when COVID-19 hit, uh, we were prepared in addressing the needs of the communities. And one of the priority was access to water. Um, living here in Monument Valley, Salmon County, Utah, 40% of our community members still lack access to running water and electricity. So when COVID hit, um, it's not just access to any water, but access to clean water because we have a lot of, um, we have a big issue with uh, uranium contamination since our, where we live here still has a lot of uh, contaminated, unclean contaminated uranium site that has been impacting our people. So we were able to do a fundraiser to purchase a lot of uh, water tanks, 275 gallon water totes that we were um, distributing to our elders that lack access to running water and large family households within throughout the Salmon County area. And as far as food access, we also distributed over 1,500 indigenous seed packets that were drought resistant corn, beans, and squash seeds, and also melon. And we engage with 
our local Future Farmers of America program, which high school students volunteered to um, prepare soil, build fences, and prepare gardens for families looking to restore their gardens. And another uh, food staple for the net people is the meat source is mutton. So we raise money to um, support our Jeanette elders who still herd sheep to this day, Navajo churro sheep. And we were able to purchase over a hundred Navajo churro sheep from various Navajo shepherds. And then we were able to gift them out in pairs to families looking to restore their flocks. And with the idea of restoring their food systems um, using the meat for food and also the wool for rug weaving and, and other um, uses as well. So this was kind of another example of responding to immediate needs of our communities. Yeah, I think that was um, the long-term kind of uh, sustainable solution that was also a cultural revitalization uh, locally to address, you know, um, interruptions in supply chain, uh, food shortages, um, fuel prices, uh, distances being covered, interruptions by the pandemic. Um, when we had been kind of talking about that for a while, Cynthia and I, especially when she was starting to get her program off the ground, because we were thinking about seeds and preservation of seeds um, and uh, thinking about how we can galvanize the community into um, getting back into the, um, ultra, the, the cultural ways of uh, farming and cultivation of traditional foods once more. And so we would source and connect with different other food sovereignty projects, communities and tribal nations. And um, you know that network, I think, really helped us uh, get through that difficult time. And following up on Cynthia's comment about immediate, immediate responsible, uh, responsive needs, um, it was you know, uh, such a difficult time for folks on the Navajo Reservation in particular. At one time, it rivaled the same amount of COVID cases in New York City. Uh, so just thinking about the sheer numbers of people being impacted and uh, a lot of the folks who are already um, health-wise compromised. Um, we gave uh, people a lot of notice and communicated about uh, vaccinations, uh, schedules, um, and we would coordinate a lot of these uh, food drops and get people, uh, as you see here, um, in the in the photos, some PPE, uh, mask, hand sanitizer, thermometers, um, oximeters, uh, a lot of equipment that a, a lot of folks didn't have access to or otherwise couldn't get at that time. So we sort of pivoted and switched to from just being a by definition conservation organization um, and help to make it a part of a effort to be a mutual aid organization as well. So this was something that um, we realized early on is that cultural protection is land protection, but also protection of the community is cultural protection. So that means our elders, our youth, anybody who is um, otherwise uh, vulnerable 
And so we wanted to make sure that we take care of them first. So Jonah here, uh, he's going to kind of bring us through this. He gives a wonderful example uh, in just under a minute about how um, we do our acknowledgement and our thanks. Um, and he's talking about right after the uh, monument um, was designated. Oh, um, the first thing that uh, we thought about, or I thought about, and then we talked about, hey, let's say a prayer. Let's say, let's say thank you to our Creator. Say thank you to Mother Earth, Father Sky, the Holy Mountains, and the Holy Waters. Coming to hide since I got here. <laughs> and uh, maybe give something, you know. Maybe a corn pollen or a corn, you know. Give it to Mother Earth or water or a stream. Say thank you, you know. We've come a long way. That's what we did. Then we thank everybody that supported us. Our staff, our organization, the Intertribal Coalition, everybody that stood with us. So that's how we started. Very good, thank you. So Jonah demonstrated right there how important it is to acknowledge all of creation first, right? He was talking about um, everything in the environment and, uh, you know, um, uh, the holy beings as well as, um, you know, elements, and then people, uh, people were, were secondary, they were next. And I think this is, speaks to a lot of indigenous uh, spiritual traditions in which you can observe that same thing where people are a part of the natural world and the environment. We're not above it, we're not better than it, we're just a part of it. And you can see that reflected even with the Haudenosaunee tradition of the Thanksgiving address. If done correctly, that will take hours, sometimes days, because you're acknowledging all of creation before you acknowledge human beings and you're giving your thanks. So that's the kind of traditional knowledge um, framework that we're operating from at UDB. And uh, this is an example of Bears Ear Summer Gatherings. Um, every summer there's a, a gathering that we've had to help unify the community and bring them together to make sure that they have experience and uh, you know positive uh, time spent with each other bonding uh, building relationships communication and uh, you have to realize that the Bears Ears coalition and the monument itself um, is fairly new and that historically all the tribes there in that coalition have kind of had um, you know some conflicts or disagreements or even battles and so we're willing to put that all aside and work together to focus on protecting a shared ancestral land and i think it's really important to see those images of people in the landscape again it's not devoid of people we are always constantly there um, the Indigenous Advocacy Conference in March of 2019 was another effort, I think, to coordinate with conservation groups and environmental folks who are in alignment with our goals to protect ancestral lands. And this was an amazing gathering that we had here in Blanding, Utah, because um, many tribes from different places all over, the, all over the country came from as far away as Alaska, Nevada, Wyoming, New Mexico. And they came there to learn about how we were able to be successful, what kind of 
strategy and plans and things did we um, uh, deploy to help uh, make our uh, campaign successful. And now I think it's one of the most important uh, tools that we can share with tribal folks teaching other tribal folks. Uh, the Wyoming folks in particular up in the Arapaho and Shoshone uh, country are really taking this forward and utilizing um, the things that we taught them now. So that's another rewarding part of this. So part of what we train them on and what we continue to do now is the UDB media orientation guide. We try to correct common mistakes, issues on uh, incorrect spelling on tribes, names, clans. We want to engage the coalition uh, history, a background and ancestral ties. We have a list of recommended terms, uh, things that we want to kind of stay away from so that we can be more culturally sensitive and accurate. Um, we don't want to perpetuate stereotypes and tropes. Um, and we continually encourage people, especially those from the outside of our communities coming in to construct some kind of narrative, whether that be in text or in images, that they should always remember the importance of reciprocity, uh, respect, and having a baseline sense of cultural knowledge and an awareness of the contemporary issues. So, so far, um, we've been fairly effective in our own representation when it comes to utilizing our platforms such as social media. Um, we actually galvanized a lot of the community here to defeat uh, House Bill 93, which was a thinly veiled discriminatory initiative to break up San Juan County into a largely non-native north and a largely native south. So it's um, kind of, you know, apartheid light. <laughs> and this was just after the Native American majority of the commission, uh, two thirds of that commission was elected. So um, it's been really important to kind of uh, mobilize folks and to get them um, informed and tell them what's happening here on the ground. And besides doing that, we also are lifting up little known narratives, things that are not as well known that we would like people to know, like lifting up um, you know, women's traditional knowledge, uh, revitalizing certain cultural life ways, and encouraging people to you know, take a look at what's happening on the ground with the community, with the issues they care about. The Bears Ears Prayer Run Alliance is another example of that. Um, they have been coming here uh, for years, and these young kids have run from their respective nations who are a part of the Bears Ears tribes. So imagine these uh, high school kids running from, you know, <laughs> uh, New Mexico, uh, coming from all the way from Zuni or coming all the way from Colorado and Toyoc or all the way from Hopi in Arizona. They're running literally hundreds of miles to come to Bears Ears. They want to understand what it means, what the relationship is to it. They want to represent the future in that kind of leadership, coordination, um, communication, and building uh, a positive future. So this is very inspiring. Uh, we presented at the uh, permanent forum at the UN um, in 2018, and we um, we presented our argument for uh, protecting uh, the Bears Ears as it was uh, designated by Obama. Um, and sharing this with a special rapporteur and uh, for uh, uh, all the nations that were there, um, both recognized nation states and tribal nations, um, 
there was a lot of respect uh, that was shown towards the Bears Ears Initiative, so much so that they actually helped push us to the front so that we could pr uh, present. And that show of support was very um, motivating and, and encouraging. And also here, we, me and Cynthia presented um, at a, a Salt Lake City United Nations event um, in which we were also speaking about the importance of the Bears Ears Initiative here to a, a local a local crowd. Yeah, and just like um, Angela was mentioning about the Bears Ears Prayer Alliance Runners, uh, it's really interesting to me um, that many other Indigenous groups have been mobilizing on their own because of how significant this landscape means to our cultures. And one of that was the woman, the formation of the Women of Bears Ears, which I'm involved with. And it's a group of women that come from four generations of women. And we are, um, we came together with wanting to restore our matrilineal roles as decision maker, cultural barriers and nurturers of our shared ancestral landscapes. And we are, we come from women of Diné, Ute, and, and Pueblo um, tribal nations. And we were recently featured actually just a year from yesterday in the New York Times opinion piece. So there's another source for that. But to me, I think through the prayer that we're first place uh, from the beginning of this movement is being addressed in these groups from our youth, from the elders, wisdom to the women leaders in our communities coming together and elevating our voices so that we continue to take care of um, our ancestral landscape at Bears Ears. This is just the, um, the punctuation on good news with the Biden administration that Deb Holland who came uh, also last year this time uh, to visit Bears Ears um, was able to uh, finally restore it in October of 2021. And that's a little slide there of, um, you know, just a little bit of the community. There was a lot of people there at the celebration at Moki Dugway uh, while it happened, um, which is on the southern end of Bears Ears. So um, I had the distinct honor of being able to tour around with the secretary and also present to her on behalf of um, the community uh, to, you know, admonish the administration to push for uh, full restoration. So uh, it's good news after a really hard and tumultuous four years. It felt like there was uh, a lot of challenges and obstacles to be overcome, and uh, it did take a toll. And there are some of those that um, we lost and, um, you know, just want to take a moment to acknowledge them and remember them too. Um, some folks, you know, that are, it was just their time or, um, uh, you know, were exposed to the pandemic or, you know, had to move on to other things in their life. Uh, you know, we appreciate them. We think about them and we couldn't have done it alone. So I also just wanted to extend an invitation for folks that are interested in watching the uh, Bears Ears documentary film short that I did with the New York uh, Culture and Media Program um, uh, at NYU, the, the, one, the program that I'm graduating from. It's available here online to stream uh, for a couple more weeks. It also has the Saving Sacred Spaces panel discussion. 
So if you go to the National Museum of the American Indian, you can watch it in full. Well, thank you both. What an, what an incredible odyssey and journey that you have both lived through yourselves and honored your ancestors who have helped bring you to this place and also um, brought you to this to this moment. I, I'm gonna invite the audience to uh, direct questions. If you have any questions for, for, our, for our guests uh, in the Q&A. In the meantime, I, I would just love to hear both of you speak about um, what's ahead and what for you, what do you feel most excited about in the next weeks, months, years? Um, and connected to that perhaps is how can people who are non-native help support the work and incredible vision that you two have represented for the communities that, that you that you come from? How can we, how can people outside of your communities support you uh, in, in this important work? Yeah, uh, to me, there's, I feel like there's a lot of education that still needs to be done, especially with outside uh, non-Indigenous groups um, working on such national monument campaigns. And I really learned that, um, like even listening to the tribal leadership uh, level, uh, they don't, they are really, they have their sovereignty status and which is why this movement was successful because five tribes united to negotiate with the federal government. So when there's like outside environmentalists or conservation groups working on such campaigns, the tribes don't like to be viewed as stakeholders or being invited into these conversations. Uh, with this movement, it was really coming from our elders and our community members who have for many years wanting to protect this ancestral landscape. So that's something um, uh, unique. And also like now that we are in the planning phases of um, this national monument, there's kind of some terms that still needs to be improved such as co-management. I know one of the elders from my community was saying We've been managed by our federal government. We've been managed by the federal government all our lives. So when when they see management, we don't we're not taught to manage land. Uh, we are just occupants of the land, and the land manages us. The land holds power, um, which is the result of climate change, uh, where it's based on human acts of um, putting boundaries and the idea of property ownership. Um, placing barriers on a lot of these cultural resources is kind of the result with things like drought and all these other um, issues with climate crisis that we are facing. So it's really, uh, it's a unique movement like Angela was mentioning before um, that we had to wear many hats, uh, even though I used to I used to work for Utah Nebuchadnezzar as a traditional foods program director, but my role was um, really engaging and being proactive at many levels um, based on the needs. So yeah, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Great, thank you. How about you, Angelo? What, what, both, both, what do you, what do you see as your own 
priorities moving ahead? What are you excited about? What are you concerned with? And then also how might people outside of native culture support you? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's right on, you know, what Cynthia is saying about we wear many hats and have different roles. And a lot of us have, uh, you know, a limited capacity and bandwidth to do as much work as we do. And also such as the work of nonprofits and, um, you know, NGOs, um, just broadly, uh, I think a lot of people do multiple things and are always kind of stretched thin with a really minimal budget. So anytime people are really willing to lend a hand, whether that means to um, do something on the ground with the community itself or work with organizations that are in alignment with the same kind of goals and projects that they see um, would be beneficial for the community and the, the grassroots people, that's appreciated. Of course, I think anytime, you know, uh, funding, resources, equipment, materials, um, those kinds of things are always appreciated. But um, in terms of the larger scope, you know, I do think that it's important for us to continually push to improve the stories that are coming out of Bears Ears because it serves already as an example uh, for other tribal nations who are trying to do the same thing to protect their ancestral lands, to uh, have their story at the forefront, their leadership, you know, um, at the lead, and that, you know, they are uh, not just, you know, considered to be an add-on or an afterthought, that they are actually the ones that are taking point on a lot of these discussions. I've been in conservation circles where entire discussions will happen, but uh, they won't ask you for your opinion. Sometimes somebody will actually have to interrupt and, you know, like, let's ask, you know, the uh, indigenous grassroots community what they think. Uh, so in every circle, uh, there is a need for improvement for bringing in full participation of indigenous voices, conservation groups, environmentalists, nonprofits, philanthropists, academics, scholars, journalists, filmmakers, everyone and anyone who's constructing a narrative that are trying to find out whether or not the, the information is accurate, it is uh, you know, historical, culturally sensitive, it's responsive, and it's also um, inclusive and, and part of the collaboration of the community. I think that's really important because people forget about that. They like to default to their classical training, which Cynthia and I have been constantly pushing people on to rethink the way that they have approached these things, the way that they enact their methodology um, and try to do a better job of being accountable and following up um, because they're, everything that we have seen <laughs> by and large can be improved when you're working with native communities. Really, really wonderful articulations, both of you. I, I'm, I'm struck in hearing you the, and sad to hear you, but not surprised, the uh, necessity to continue to restate the importance of centering uh, Native voices, Indigenous voices in these, not just these questions relevant to Native communities, but especially I think around the larger questions of what we're facing now relevant to kind of challenges in the world. Uh, always the nature of what you also even reviewed relevant to how you all responded to the COVID crisis. I think we have a lot to learn uh, relevant to that and the deep ties 
to connection to each other, deep ties to the land, deep integrated understanding of our world and your, our roles in the world is something that I think is so critical in so many, so many arenas of our lives. So with, with that slight segue, I'm gonna pick up on uh, one of the questions that colleague Judy Beals asked. And I'm gonna preface the question by saying that religion and public life is um, promoting the public understanding of religion in service of a just world at peace. And I, I wanna say when um, I had the good joy to discover Sin's work, reached out to her a little over a year ago now to invite her to consider being a fellow for us in the Religion and Public Life program. She was very hesitant, um, recognizing and articulating very clearly that when she thinks of religion and the role of religion, it has not been um, an arena or a category that, um, that has served uh, native cultures well. And we know that religion's a constructed category and a foreign one in many ways to indigenous communities. So with that preface, can you um, perhaps one or both of you speak about um, the role of what you can envision religious communities outside of native cultures? What can they do who are eager to support you without the um, unintended consequence often that happens of undermining the very work you're doing through a religious lens that's often not interrogated. Cynthia, do you want to take that one since you're in the program? <laughs> um, well, we've, with, with our work, it was really about um, engaging our voices, um, really focus on like the cultural aspect of it. But as far as other religious groups and how they can support, um, I think is just, well, there's just big movement. I know I've seen it on the Q&A too, is providing space. Um, like land, land back has been a really huge topic of providing space and opportunities for indigenous peoples to reclaim their ancestral ties to these places. And because a lot of our communities have artists, like indigenous artists, um, indigenous cooks, uh, but their work is, their work needs to be shown in more spaces or galleries and um, other areas that uh, because right now we're just kind of limited to federal reserve land where there's not many opportunities to engage our work and our expertise, um, which is why uh, reclaiming our voices, at least into the planning process at Bears Ears is a step forward. Yet there's still a lot that needs to be done as far as policy change in advocating for appropriate language into these planning processes moving forward. Um, I don't know, Angela. Yeah, I think this is a really, it's a tricky question to ask us because, you know, we're already trying to coordinate between several different tribes, respectfully, culturally sensitive ways, right? And so mm -hmm. that kind of negotiation is a new thing. 
and we're doing our best not to step on each other's toes. So we do have a deep and profound respect for each other's cultural and spiritual practices, uh, our beliefs and our ways that we don't want to impose upon each other. The irony about all that also is that in the state of Utah, you know, it's largely um, uh, a Mormon state and, you know, they're having a lot of trouble catching up to have the same respect <laughs> for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, even within, you know, the, uh, the Book of Mormon and the religion uh, is a fundamental tenet that Lamanites are Native Americans cursed with a dark skin. Now, if you operate from that framework, we're automatically not seen as human. And then we're always striving to be a metric that is seen in their eyes as white, righteous, and acceptable. And um, we don't want to be that. We are who we are. We have preceded that religion and those outsiders. This is our land. We're connected to it. We have our own religion, our own beliefs, our own language, you know, our own home that we're connected to. And I just uh, would invite people to kind of think of it broadly um, as, you know, an opportunity for healing that historical trauma. Uh, because we talk about Bears Ears being for healing, and we want to talk about that historical trauma, all the wars, the battles, the disease, the imprisonment, genocide, removal, all of that stuff. It's really important if we're able to move forward. And um, there are very little opportunities in other places in this country where we are actually putting that forth and putting it forward and saying, here's a space where we should go and talk about that. Um, we don't see that offered up, not even in um, places of debate, of free intellectual exchange or religion. You know, there's just folks are coming from it uh, from their own perspective uh, rather than, again, foregrounding indigenous voices and, and understanding how is it that we can do these acts of reciprocity and healing. Maybe it's land back, maybe it's honoring the treaties. Maybe it's restoring and, you know, rematriating the land. Maybe it's all of that and more. You know, it depends on where you're at. We can't speak broadly for everyone. But we know that here, this is our home. It's where we belong. We're part of the community and we do our best to speak and represent uh, for the community in respectful ways when it comes to anything, you know, historical trauma, genocide, um, and even religion. Um, First and foremost, it's really important for us to respect each other before we can imagine a future where we're collectively moving together in a good way. Well, thank you. Uh, that is a, a beautiful closing set of commentaries from both of you. Um, I want to thank you again for, for joining us with this webinar. Um, for the honor of working with both of you, we hope that we will continue to partner with you as we learn from you uh, around what the ways that we at Harvard, specifically through the Religion and Public Life Program at the university as a whole, can uh, serve to advance the narratives that you feel are so important to use our platform to do so, um, and also to support your work in, in that way. I want to thank uh, again our, our co-sponsors, HUNEP, uh, for co-sponsoring this wonderful webinar to let all of you who are listening know that there will be a recording available that will be on our, uh, our website, Religion Public Life website. Thank you both again for being with us um, and for illuminating this incredible journey you've been on and, the, and, and giving us a vision of a, a possible future that we want to support you uh, and acting. So thank you again. Sponsor, 
Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.